How's everybody doing? Yeah. Man, it has been a whirlwind kind of uh, chunk of weeks coming out of our uh, Compass series and into From Here to Eternity series and then Vision Sunday uh, was so exciting. I mean, uh, just in comparison, not that any year has been a bad year, but um, just the engagement of the church and the way that people have been um, just jumping on board, you know, as anchors and becoming a part of the family here. Uh, it kind of culminated all on uh, Thursday uh, with our uh, team night. Um, and if you're an anchor here, uh, I think we, we had a pretty large participation. Almost all our anchors have showed up. That was well over 100 people uh, were in the room. And it was a very serious and somber night. Uh, if any, the laughter will tell you that it wasn't. Um, and although the, most people made a mockery of me uh, in that, all of my mannerisms. So if I'm a little insecure today... Uh, for any reason with the things that I do or some of the tendencies I have and kicking and talking with my hands or whatever. Um, you know, if I'm a little quieter and subdued, that's why. Um, don't worry, I won't be. Um, but we, uh, we are back in the Come and Listen series, which I am so excited about. It is definitely one of my favorite things in the church, and there's certainly um, a small contingency, maybe more of you than I know about, uh, that love this series. It's why we've continued to do it, and we've made it a part of our teaching uh, rhythms here at our church. And if you haven't been around for a while, uh, we have three parts to our teaching rhythms, uh, and we're in the Word of God every week. It's the foundation um, of all of our teaching, the way that we um, establish the theology of the church uh, always comes from the inerrancy of Scripture and the Word of God. So sometimes we're in a book of the Bible and we're just systematically going through it. We don't have a series title. We're just Colossians. That's all, all it is because we don't want to add anything, take anything away. We want to dig in and say, God, speak to us, speak to the leadership, speak to the church, and lead us through your words, the way that we should approach the Word of God. Sometimes we're in a series like From Here to Eternity, which we were just in, uh, and then we have the Come and Listen series, which we've been doing since 2014. And the idea is that we're in the entire narrative arc of Scripture, like the whole thing. Uh, not every week, like we don't do Genesis to Revelation in an entire talk, uh, but we've been doing it since 2014. We started in Genesis and we've been traveling. Uh, today we'll be in a, a Second Chronicles chapter 12. Uh, which is awesome because we get to kind of bounce back and forth in the king's era. Uh, if uh, you don't know anything about how the Bible's structured, there's a lot, it's not fully chronological, so there's a lot of overlaying books where you get second perspectives from different authors that are in there, and they're super helpful. It makes it super fun to engage in the Bible. So we've gone back now, um, and we're kind of in the beginnings, uh, or the you know, beginning to the middle beginning of the kingdom era in the Come and Listen series. And the whole idea in the Come and Listen series is that we would dig into these individual stories of God's faithfulness, but ultimately that we would zoom out and that we would see that, that the narrative arc of Scripture points to one event, points to specifically one person, points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, God knew what his redemptive plan would be. He knew that as rebels, that he would have a plan to chase us down. Like we, just that, that idea that he is the one, whether we, whether we want him there or not, he's, he's the one that's in, in it with us in the fire. He's in it with us in the flood. He is coming after us. He is chasing us down. He is the, the hound of heaven. And that is what this story is about from beginning to the end. Every, as, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every page whispers his name. That is the Come and Listen series. Come and see what he's done for you, what he's done for me, and what he's done for us. Now, to catch us up in the Come and Listen series, although it was mocked at team night, 
um, uh, how I catch us up in the Come and Listen series, I always like to create a little bit of context because drifting in and out of a series that you keep doing, you sometimes forget where you are in the Bible and you just zoom into these stories about, you know, in 2 Chronicles chapter 12. I mean, it's like, where is this? You know, what, what's the date? And who's Rehoboam? You know, you just don't know. And so I'm going to give us a little quick catch up. So the story at the very beginning when we're in Genesis, what happens? Creation happens. God breathes everything out into, into existence and it's good. And the culmination of creation is man and woman. And everything is good in the relationship between man and woman and God. They are existing together in an unbelievable place called the Garden of Eden on planet Earth, which we don't even have a concept for. We get glimpses now in our brokenness, but they were existing in perfection until what happens? Genesis chapter three doesn't take very long. The very verse, first verse, it says, and then the serpent and things go downhill from there because he convinces them that they can be their own boss. They could be the captain of their own ship. They could be their own gods. They could know what God knows. They could rule like God. They don't need God. So rebellion and sin enter the Garden of Eden. They are booted out of the Garden of Eden to fiery angels on the east end of the Garden of Eden, and they aren't coming back. And things go south from there. And as you know how the story goes from there, things get worse and worse and worse to the point where God tells the guy, says, hey, things are going to go south and it's going to happen soon. And so he gets Noah to build an ark. Now soon in God's book was 120 years. So he waited a while and Noah must have been pretty old. And he had everything on the ark except for maybe the dinosaurs, because we don't see those anymore. But everything gets on the ark, and then all of a sudden he starts over, but then just a couple of chapters later, it goes south again, and we have the Tower of Babel, and people say, hey, we're going to find our way up to God. We are going to reach God. We are going to make a name for ourselves. And God's like, my name is the only name that matters. You're not going to make a name for yourself. And he spreads them all out over planet Earth. And then as we move into the story, we see the redemptive plan really take shape as he takes a guy from a pagan land, Abraham, and he says, look up at the sky. See the stars in the sky? You're a family now, but soon your descendants will number the stars in the sky. And you won't just be a family. You won't just be a tribe, but you will be a nation. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then you have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons had a family that got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And because of famine, they ended up in Egypt. But they stayed in Egypt for 400 years. And because that nation went from a family to a tribe, to lots of tribes, to a whole lot of people, up to 2 million people, those people were enslaved. They were the workforce in Egypt for 400 years. So God decides my people cannot be in bondage. I am their God and they are my people. So he raises up a guy. Now he raises him up a little bit older than you would think. He was 80 years old. He was well retired and kind of doing his own thing, walking along a hillside. And God says, you're going to be the one that is going to be the instrument in my hands to let my people go, to bring my people into freedom. And Abraham says, I don't want to go. I have kind of a speech impediment. I don't even know what I'm doing. God says, it doesn't matter. I'm going to go with you. So he goes there and he tells Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, you got to let the people go. Pharaoh says, I don't want to let the people go. Plagues come, 10 plagues, in fact. And Pharaoh goes, uh-oh. I better let the people go. So he lets the people go. And then he decides, I shouldn't let the people go. That's two million people. That's our labor force. And then he chases the people all the way up to what? The edge of the Red Sea. And then all of you have seen the Prince of Egypt. If you're young, you know what you see. You see Moses hold his hands up and parts the Red Sea or Charlton Heston if you're a little bit older. And then they cross the Red Sea. And then what happens? The Egyptians, the horse and the rider, they fall into the sea. Just like the song, Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh. Whoa. We got to go, huh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, y'all remember, that's a worship song Aaron's going to do next week. You know, he's going to wax that mustache and go at it, you know. It's going to be amazing. 
And then what happens? Very soon after that, even though they should be thankful, they did sing a worship song, you know, on the other side of the Red Sea, but things go fast. You know, they, they start to complain about food from heaven. It must have been like North Beach Fish Camp, but it was bread, it was manna. It was stuff that, that we, I'm sure, would have liked, but they complained about it, wanted to go back to Egypt, and because of their sin, because of their rebellion, even in the desert, they wandered in the desert for how many years? 40 years, and what happens? Moses passes the mantle on to Joshua. Now, Joshua gets to actually go into the promised land, the land of milk and honey, but it's filled with what? It's filled with Canaanites. It's filled with people that don't live the way. They are not the people of God. They're not living the way that God would have anyone live, and God tells them to subdue the land. Now, that's an uncomfortable thing to preach through in Joshua because he is like William Wallace and Braveheart, and he is going to slay everybody, and it's got really bloody in the book of Joshua. Now, Judges, it kind of goes south again, and you begin to see the pattern of God's redemption and the continual rebellion of people in Judges. It's one of those things that you see. It's very uncomfortable as you go through the book of Judges. You see people are with God, and then they all of a sudden walk away from God, and they ingrain themselves into the culture of the people that are there, and then God says, well, I'm going to put you in the hands of these people that you so much love. And then they cry out for mercy. And then God raises up a judge who calls them back home. And they come back home for a minute. And then all of a sudden, rebellion over and over again. And there's 40 judges in total. And that lasts 400 years. Now, the last judge was Samuel. And he was the one that's the transitional judge into the kingdom era. But Samuel had to hear the people sing like Alanis Morissette. It's not fair. We don't have a king. So all of a sudden they say, we want a king like the rest of the world has a king. And he says, well, you have the king of kings. And they said, no, it's not like the earthly king, like they have in Egypt, like they have over here, like they have over there. We want our own king. So Samuel goes, okay, we'll anoint a king. And God anoints Saul as king. Now Saul was good in the beginning. He was a prophet. He was a king and he rose to power. And then all of a sudden, Things go south with Saul. And then David's anointed king, known as the greatest king in all of Israel. And even David had his pinnacle moments, but he was also very sinful and he went downhill. And then we had King Solomon. Solomon would do something very great. He built the temple, but Solomon was very wise, very smart, kind of, because he partied like P. Diddy. And he did it like nobody else did it. And that's where we transition into him handing the reins over to his son, Rehoboam. And that's where we find ourselves in 2 Chronicles chapter 12. All right, we're all caught up. Now, just a little background. If you got your Bible in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, what's happening after Solomon is handing the reins over to Rehoboam, um, there's a little bit of tension that's, that's going on because coming out of that era, the, you know, Solomon had done some things that weren't weren't that nice. Like he, he, had, he liked his own forest. He liked his big palaces. He liked the places that he, he wanted to party. He lived an opulent lifestyle. And to live that type of lifestyle and to have some of the things that he liked to have, it, on the lower class people in Israel, it, it was oppressive. He had slaves. He had a, a labor force that, that worked for him. And so there was a lot of tension with the people in this particular period over that labor force. In fact, this is one of the reasons that the kingdom split into the north and the south. If you know anything about the story in the Bible in the Old Testament is there was one Israel, there was 12 tribes and it, had, it spanned over this chunk of land. And then all of a sudden, this is the point in which you get the southern kingdom, which Rehoboam ends up ruling over, Judah and Benjamin. And then you have the northern kingdom where Jeroboam ends up taking that. He was a military leader for Solomon and ultimately a, a military leader for Rehoboam, and they didn't see eye to eye. And we're going to find out why as we read this passage in Scripture. So it says, 
After Rehoboam's position as king was established, he had become strong. He and all Israel with him abandoned the law of God. So what, is, what does this mean that Rehoboam had become strong and he and all of Israel had abandoned the law of God? Well, like I said, there was some tension in the kingdom. And Rehoboam had advisors. And along the way, Jeroboam had said, hey, if you take over, if, if you get, take, take the reins of this thing, then you need to take all of this oppressive labor force. You, need to, you can't enslave people. The burden is too heavy for them. You need to lighten the yoke and lighten the burden for the people of Israel. And so Rehoboam goes to his older advisors, the ones that used to advise Solomon, and asks for wisdom, which was very good on his part. In the presence of many counselors, there is wisdom. So he goes to them and they say, yes, you absolutely should remove this burden. It was absolutely too much to bear for Israel. It was sinful and it was against God. So he removed that burden, but it only lasted for about a minute. Because then he goes to his peers, to, to some of his younger advisors. He's like, hey guys, what do, you, what do y'all think about this, man? You know, about this whole, you know, remove the labor force and do all the stuff and, you know, be nice to everybody. And, you know, I'm not as big as I think I am. Everybody else, we need to kind of be on our own level. And his young advisor, this is his problem going to his peers and his younger advisors, the mistake he made. He says this, and if you go back into 2 Chronicles chapter 10, it says, so he asked his younger friend's opinion. This is where things go south. And it'll probably go south with you. Hey, let's go ask our younger friends what they think about raising kids. You know what I'm saying? Usually it doesn't work out too well. So they advise him to lord it over the people and boast. Good advice, guys. You should say things like, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. I mean, they're making jokes. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. I don't know what it's like to get disciplined with scorpions, but it doesn't sound good. I mean, I threaten my kids with that sometimes, but, you know, that's just kind of a, you know, one of those things that preachers do. But anyway, you've got this whole thing that's happening, and what you can sense, even in this passage, that, that Rehoboam, his, his biggest problem and what's overcome him in this moment is ego, this is about him being somebody. This is about him being more than his father. It's about being, him, being more than David was. Everybody's heard the legend of David. Everybody's heard the legend of Solomon. And now Rehoboam wants to be his own man. He wants to be bigger and badder, more, you know, more of whatever he wanted to be. And his friends are around him convincing him that that's the, I mean, they saw the life that Solomon led and that Solomon's friends kind of benefited from that. So they kept pushing him to, to go in that direction. And it was his ego that was driving that train. Now, if you go into verse 2, you begin to see what happens as a result of that. Now, the rest of the kingdom of Israel, outside of the oppressed, outside of the ones where the yoke and the burden happened, they all kind of jumped on board as well. Because Rehoboam just jumped back into the culture that existed with all the other people that weren't Israelites, worshiping other gods having temple prostitutes, doing all kinds of things that were absolutely opposed to the commandments of God and the law of God, doing what they wanted, kind of just blending in to the rest of the world. They had Twitter and Snapchat and Netflix, and they didn't care. They were doing whatever they wanted with it. I'm just kidding. I mean, just everybody's so quiet. They're like, are we not supposed to have Twitter? I've got someone that I follow. I wonder if they're sinful or not. Anyway, they, they, they did everything that, the world was doing. 
And they, didn't, they weren't set apart for God. They, they, they didn't look like they were God's children and God was their God. It, it looked completely different than that. And in that sin against God, this is what happens. So it says, because, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem in the fifth year of, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam with 1,200 chariots. Can you imagine 1,200 chariots? I mean, I've never seen like a chariot up close because we don't have chariots anymore. But thinking about it and just thinking about that many uh, just blows my mind. And think about this, 60,000 horsemen and the innumerable troops of the Libyans, Sakites, the Cushites came with him from Egypt. I mean, I can't even imagine just what that looked like coming towards you. And of course, he captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem, which was unheard of because for many years, nobody dominated like Israel and Jerusalem when it came to military power, wisdom, and might. And it says, the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. And he said to them, this is what the Lord says. Now a prophet, you know, an Old Testament prophet, they, they literally heard from the Lord. I mean, it's not like, you know, New Testament prophecy or when we talk about prophetic words or anything like that, when it when, is it, it, in the way that we see it happening today, this is totally different. These people literally heard the words of the Lord and said, thus saith the Lord. We don't do that anymore, but they, that's what they would, they would say. And they'd say, God told me these things and I'm supposed to repeat them to you. So these are the words of the Lord. You have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. I don't want to hear those words from God. And leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is just. So they responded in a way that is honorable and the smart thing to do. And I love that they, that they, they said, I didn't even think about this as we were going over this in uh, the first gathering, but the fact that they said the Lord is just in what he's, in what he's saying and how he's responded lets you know just how far it had gotten. I mean, they must have looked around and said, yeah, we have abandoned God. We have abandoned the ways that God was trying to lead us to life, and we've certainly gone a different direction. In verse seven, it says, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. So then again, he's saying the words of God. He says, since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, listen to this, and this is important. They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. I mean, that's, that's one that can reverberate into our world, that verse. I wanted to release them. Think about this. God does this over and over in Scripture. You read about it in the book of Romans. I'm going to release them to the things that they want so bad, the things that they think will rescue them, the things that they think are true kings, the things that they think are true gods. I'm going to let them become subject to them so that they may learn the difference between serving and worshiping me and serving and worshiping the kings of other lands. So that begs the question as we read this in our own lives. I mean, I think that's, is, 
unapplicable as it might feel when you read an ancient text talking about something that happened in 953 BC. You, you don't even think, how could that possibly relate? But when I read these words about the difference between serving God and the difference between serving the world or the difference between serving this king or this king, I can make the relation in my mind to where we are. Because everybody in the room is in service to something. Everybody is. We all serve someone. You could be a, a, your own business owner and think that you run everything. And you're like, oh, no, I don't. My customers run everything. I mean, you're in service to something. And at the bottom of surface, any type of service, and you can, you can insert worship there because those are the things that we serve. The things that we, the, that we serve and that we think are valuable, that are worth serving are the things that we worship. Those are the things that we put our energy towards. Those are the things that we praise. You might say, well, I, I got a boss that I serve and I definitely don't worship or praise that joker. But there's something behind that paycheck that you get from that boss that you need to save you, that you need to rescue you, that you will spend or use or leverage. There's a desire. At the bottom of serving is desire for all of us. There's long-term desires and there's short-term desires. Now, desire... I'll just tell you right now, desires, I mean, the, the, the desires wired into the human makeup. I mean, outside of what we see when we talk about sin and when we talk about the Bible, but when we just talk about human nature, when we talk about the, the social and physical way that we are made, we will serve what we desire. When we are hungry, we eat. When we are thirsty, we drink. When we are lonely, we find people or we pine for people or look for people. I mean, we go down that, that road and then we have long-term desires that we, we do things. We work and we serve other people, which isn't necessarily you know, wrong. It's, this, is, this is kind of the benign part of serving and desire. We serve, like I said, we serve bosses, we serve people so that we can get paychecks, so that we can have a roof over, over our head. But we also seek pleasure because we desire pleasure and that's wired inside of us. We like, we like fun. Everybody does. People like to go on vacation. Nobody's, you know, going to deny and go, well, I just, you know, I think have, going on vacation and having fun is ungodly. No, everybody, everybody does that. Everybody is in that place of seeking pleasure, entertainment, food, sex, all of those things we all do. But we also, in our desire matrix, is our value and worth. We desire value and worth. So we do things along the way and we serve things expecting them to give us value and worth, don't we? We have things that we, we lean towards hoping that this will be the thing that gives me value and worth. I mean, the existential crisis for anybody, and again, this is, I don't care if you're a Christian, you don't believe in any type of you know, religion or anything, and somebody brought you here today. Everybody understands that the existential questions of life all stem from three questions. One is, where did we come from? Like, why are we, you know, like, what, what, where did we come from? What, what was the generation? Like, how did we end up here on planet Earth? You know, the pale blue dot, that whole, where did we come from? And then there's, why am I here? And then it's, where am I going? You know, are we just going to be worm food or is there something after this, right? But the question that we all sit in, in the day in, day out is the middle one, right? Why am I here? Do I have value? Do I have, is there's this thing inside of me that seeks value and worthiness. I want to leave a legacy. I want to do something that's worthwhile. I want to create art. I want to have a job or I want to have safety while I'm here. 
My kids are my legacy. We all are trying to create some sort of worth and value. And our desires are driven by that at the bottom. And we begin to serve things that give us the worth and the value that we all need. Not, there's nobody in the room that is not built or wired for worthiness and value. There's nobody. And you might, want, I mean, you might say it outwardly, like I don't need anybody to tell me anything or compliment me or do anything. Just the fact that you're saying that tells me that you need worth and value. We, all, we are all built that way. So the question is, is are, we, are we supposed to fight human desire? Is that what this passage is saying? And is that what we see throughout Scripture? That we fight our human desire to serve other things, to serve our own needs, to serve other gods, to serve and worship other kings, to fight those desires and serve God. Or let's put it this way. This is just, a, you know, growing up in the Southeast and going to church growing up, I always saw it this way. It was, it's more black and white than, than it actually is. I always saw it as here's fun and life and here is the things I desire. Here's the people I want to be around. Here's the stuff I want to do. I went to Christian school for 15 years, so I, I felt this heavy. And, and this is all that stuff, Right? And then there's what you're supposed to do is deny all of that, not do anything fun, not do anything exciting, not do anything that, that makes your heart go pitter-pat, not, not, not any of that stuff. You're going to go over here to where Jesus is going, it's a good thing you're over here with me. I know it's not a whole lot of fun, but it's also not as hot as it's going to be in hell. I mean, that's just the way that I grew up. It was one or the other. There was two sides to the coin, and those, those were it. It was... Deny everything that your heart desires. Deny everything that seems like where life is found and go to the place that's boring, where lily white Jesus exists. It's going to be lame and everybody's going to think you're a weird Christian-y guy, but you won't go to hell. I mean, that was kind of where it was. But is that, is that what it is? Because there's, the fact is, is that desire is a God-given drive. He gave, it, he gave it to us so that we would live. I mean, you eat because God's like, if they don't have a desire to eat, that little thing in the brain that tells you, you will die. You won't survive. And God sees that we need those things. It, it helps us see that he exists and see that he is good. But how does all that work? Those two sides to that coin? Because we know that in many ways, there are things that we deny. We know that suffering is a part of the Christian life. We know that we don't like... It's, it's not the prosperity gospel where if you get Jesus, then you get everything. If you give to Jesus, give enough money to the church, give enough money to Jesus, you're going to be wealthy. You're not going to get sick. The reason that you're sick is because you don't have enough faith. You haven't been to church enough. You haven't done enough good things. And that's why. And then if you are one of those pe people that's healthy and wealthy and things are happening for you, you must, you must be doing it right. They must be serving in children's ministry or doing something really good to get all that cash. So we know it's not that. Because we know that suffering is a part. Look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, my man was shipwrecked twice, snake bitten. He was beaten he, and ultimately beheaded in Rome. So we know that it's not, we don't live for our desire. We don't, we don't live life with our hands in God's pockets so that we can have a good life. There's something else at the center of our desire. Because desire is not wrong. And denying the things of this world obviously is right. So where, do, where, does it, where does all this fall? 
You know, this idea of serving other kings, because all of us are wired to serve things, to worship, to worship. All of us have desire in our heart. So I want to answer this question because it's, when I read this passage, it just sits there. It's just like, okay, God's trying to lead Rehoboam to understand. He's like, I want you to, I want, I want you to see what it's like to serve another king. There was something that God knew that they, would, that they would find out, that Rehoboam and the people of God would find out that it's not better to serve another king. That, it's, that you will find out that that's not where life is. That's not what's satisfying. That's not where joy is. There's nothing wrong with desire. But where, where have you set your desire? So how is, how is serving God not fighting our desire? Or what's the, let's, what's, there's a better, better way to phrase this and a better question. In what way does serving God not oppose our desires? In what way does serving God not oppose our desires? Because I don't think it's this this split that we're talking about. That's not what we see in Scripture. So the first clear answer to that question is you were designed to serve and glorify God. And what that means, if you were designed that way, is that that's where joy is found. That desiring God, setting your desire ultimately on God, your worship ultimately on God, because the reality is is that all of us are going to lift something up. All of us are going to glorify something. All of us are going to worship something. You were cre- every one of you in here was created to worship. And I know in your mind, what you think about, you think about worship in church. You know, I don't know, I'm not a hand raiser. I'm not, I'm not talking about that type of, I'm talking about where's your affection? You know, it's the thing, it's responding with your life to what you believe matters most. And that can be in the moment or over a lifetime. And we do it in all kinds of different areas of life. We do it at football games. I mean, I see people lose their mind at a Jaguars game and I have no idea why. I mean, you see people go crazy at a concert. You could take pictures and clips of people at, at a concert and then show them at a worship gathering and you wouldn't know the difference between the two. It's because in the moment, that's what matters most. In the moment, that's where our desires are either temporarily or eternally being satisfied and something's happening. We are all created to worship. You were designed to worship God. You were Specifically, designed to serve Him and glorify Him. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 6, I says, and this is all over. If you, if you ever do a study on the glory of God and what you were created for, that God is ultimately for God's glory and it's for your good that He is for His glory. And the troubling part about that statement is often we can feel like, well, that's just egotistical of God. Well, God is in, in competition with nobody. So there's no reason for God to have ego. He's actually rightly in the first position. Him not being in that position would kind of be unsettling for me as somebody that would worship God. Why would I want to worship somebody that's kind of like, oh, don't worship me. You know, I'm not actually that good. I mean, I wouldn't, that's not who I'm going to give my praise and worship to, right? So Isaiah 43 says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for what? For my glory, whom I formed and made. The very purpose, answering the question, the great existential question, why are you here? And where do you get value? How? 
How is that even possible? Well, guess what you were created for? You were created for his glory. You were created to serve him. You were created to worship him. Colossians 1 says, says it this way, for in him all things were created. That's Jesus when we see that pronoun him. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He created everything that we know, everything that we see, whether it's spiritual, whether it's the physical earth that we see, all things have been created, what? Through him, meaning he's the active force in creation, and for him. And I love those last two words. You were created, because you're a created thing, for who? Jesus. You were created for him. We have purpose in our life. In the, the direction of our service. We were created, the satisfaction of our souls lands in the place of knowing and understanding that we serve someone greater than ourselves and greater than other human beings. I mean, it's why the first commandment reads the way that it reads, that you should have no other gods before you. We always think, well, we don't have graven images all over the place. Like, I don't have that stuff in my house, so I have no other gods. We have gods. We have things that we worship. We have things that we mistakenly believe that will save us. I think this is the thing that will rescue me. This empty place in my heart is going to get fixed here. I mean, what do we mostly serve? I mean, I can tell you my biggest struggle, and I think everybody gets into this place, is ourselves. We become the center of, we, we wouldn't say, well, I worship myself. But we certainly think that we're the solution to our problems. But the problem is, is nobody is going to be more disappointing to you than you. I mean, it's so true. We will always be disappointing to ourselves. I mean, we try, and there's moments in life when we're not. I mean, when the ego is really there, and that's what Rehoboam's trying to look for in this moment. Like, how do, I, how do I attain value? How do I attain worthiness? How can I feel like, you know what? My little pinky finger is better than everybody on planet Earth. I mean, he's even in his words, he's trying to convince himself that he's awesome. And for a moment, you can feel that way. I mean, you can get all ganked up and chiseled in the gym doing your thing and you're gonna look good for a minute. I mean, you are, you're gonna look great. And guys for a little bit longer because even when the gut starts coming, they still glory in it. They're like, babe, babe, have you seen this? This is fantastic. Um, I'm glad, that, did I do that on the stream too? I hope I didn't. Um, anyway, you, 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 it's not gonna last. Money, doesn't last. Money doesn't last. I mean, it's just, it's the way that, we, it's never enough. The stuff that we go after in life to make ourselves what we want to be, it doesn't last. It's interesting, I was listening to a, uh, a podcast this week. It was a Joe Rogan. I don't know if anybody listens to him. Um, you're sinful if you do. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I listen to, like, I, I tell people, and you can email me about it if you want, um, but I listen to the Christian podcast, plenty of those. But I like to, you want to know, I want to know where the world, the pulse of the world. Sometimes Christians get a little bit too far out into the, like, we're just going to churn butter and live off on the land and stuff. And you forget that people have problems and you got to be where people are. Meet people where they are. And so I'm just listening to um, what they're talking about. And they're talking about COVID and politics and, you know, stuff. And I'm just rolling my eyes. But they started just talking about what's the source 
of all of the problems? Like, what's the source of all, like, we hate China, China hates us, and the government, you know, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, get along with different people, and, and there's different countries at war with each other. And, and Joe Rogan's saying, well, it's all rooted in just a, a few people. You know, the people that live in Florida or Texas or in the Midwest, they don't hate Chinese people. I mean, do you? I mean, we just don't. But there's something about the government where just all of a sudden we get told, you know, what to do. And he's just explaining the whole way that politics works. He says, it's all money. It's all driven by the almighty dollar. That's everything. He's like, if, if it's about them taking our money or us, their money being exported here, and it all goes down to the dollar bill. And Jim Gaffigan just sat there and listened in silence and didn't say anything. And then he said, I completely and utterly and totally disagree. And I love that when that kind of stuff happens, especially with Joe Rogan, because he's kind of prideful. Anyway, so and, he, and Jim Gaffigan's so funny. And he just says, I don't think it's money. He says, think about the entertainment industry. And he asked Joe Rogan, he says, for entertainers like us, people, comedians that do what we do every day, day in, day out, is it the money that drives the whole train? Is, it, is that what drives Hollywood? Is that, is that what drives the comedy clubs and the com comedians that are in them? And, and Joe Rogan's like, yes, it's money. It's money. Jim Gaffin's, he's like, no, it's ego. He said, it's ego. He said, look at, look at the award shows. Look at the stuff that's going on in any facet. He goes, we know that. We don't know much about politics. We don't really can't. We can, you know, chat on about it. But this we do know. That we want to be told we're good by our peers. We want to be just, look at, just like Rehoboam. He goes to his boys. He goes to who he's around. He's about to make this decision, the right decision. His boys are like, bro, don't do that. You're better than that. You're better than that. You just won the Academy Award. You need to do X. And Jim Gaffigan's saying, as entertainers, as comedians, why are we doing it? Are we doing it for the money or are we doing it for the laugh? He's like, we're doing it for the laugh. We're doing it so that we feel like we're somebody, so we have worth, so we have value. And then they continued to talk about how fragile it is, how hard it is to go home at night when you bomb. Because you know what? There's no guarantee with any human being. And when, it, when, when you've made life about you and your ego, guess what? You will always be disappointing to you. I mean, every, I mean, there are so many stories, star after star after star that has money and fame. They will tell you that you get to the end of yourself. The money's good for a while. The fame is good for a while, but it runs out and it actually begins to run the opposite direction and own you. John Mayer said he was, he was an ego addict, addicted to Twitter, what people liked about him, what people hated about him. He said he'd have to leave award shows early to go home and he would ban himself from social media because he would look at it to get high. And then all of a sudden, it would all kind of leak out and he'd have to look at it again just to get high again. He literally used those terms because the thing that you thought was good that was feeding your soul is actually the thing that's enslaved you and owns you because they make horrible gods. They do. And that's the other thing. We try to make others that. We put a wicked expectation on other human beings that was never meant for them to carry. And people are wonderful and beautiful and we're supposed to be in relationship with one another. We're supposed to find, I mean, spouses and romance. God put all that in the mix. But people make horrible gods. They are not the things that we were meant to serve. We were not created to serve them or to worship them or to put the expectation of this is how I'm going to get my worthiness and value. 
This person's going to do it. I'm finally going to find the one. He's, look at him. Everything about him is so fantastic. And he doesn't do everything I tell him to do, but God's going to change him over the years and he's going to be perfect. And then the unicorn is born and we'll all study him and see how to make more. And no, they, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And it's a sinful, wicked expectation to put on another human being. It's what crushes marriages is we get into them forgetting that we were in a covenant which says, no matter what, I will love you. No matter what you look like, no matter how you treat me, no matter how depressed you get, no matter what medications you're on, no matter how south everything goes, I'm not going anywhere. No, we get into marriage going, as long as you're pretty, as long as you love me back, as long as you're not depressed, as long as you don't have to go to therapy, as long as you act this way, then I'll love you. Otherwise, I'm hitting the eject button. It's because we've made them our God. It's because we've said, I will serve you. And my expectation of serving you is that you will fix the brokenness inside of me. But people are not redeemers. People are not restorers. They're not saviors. They're wonderful and beautiful people. We do that to our kids. I've done it to my kids. Go play soccer and make me look good. Go do this and make me feel awesome about myself because I'm a great parent. I mean, moms, have you ever cooked, like been like, tonight, everybody is going to love my cooking. They're going to come home, and I am good at what I do, and this is the display of everything, and the kids walk in. What's that smell? Brussels sprouts, it's green. You know, you're just like, they will let you down. They are a fragile, broken foundation. They are not a God. They make crummy gods. They're wonderful and beautiful gifts from God but they are not God. They are not God. And we, we make them that. You know, C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, and man, we run after a lot of them, and we serve them just like Rehoboam. The only logical explanation is I was made for another world. You were made to glorify God. John Piper modifies the Westminster Confession of Faith and says that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That means that's where our desires should lay. That's where we're supposed to, supposed to have our desires. You know, and that's the common grace that we all have. It's not bad that, 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 that wine exists, that good food exists, that we could have those things. But Romans 1 says, don't worship the created thing, worship the creator in other words, when you're engaging in a meal with friends, it shouldn't be about, we just got to get to Friday night so we can get a couple glasses of wine in us, forget all the crap from the week, have a good steak, and have some laughs. Fine to have the laughs, fine to enjoy the wine, but what is he saying? He's saying there should be thankfulness. Actually, in the passage in Romans 1, he says, but everybody forgot to give thanks. Not flippant thanks, but really look up in a moment with your friends and say to the glory of God that we get this moment because it might not last. It's fragile. This wine might not last. That steak might not last. But right now, by God's grace, I don't know why we get it, but we want to say thank you that we're in this moment. We glorify you for what you've given us and what we've been able to enjoy. That's a different way of looking at it. Because God also wants us to know that, guess what? That same wine, if you elevate it above God and make that the thing that saves you and rescues you, will own you. It will own you. It will be the thing that, yes, in a moment, it can, might, might make you reduce your anxiety, make you forget some stuff. But eventually, 
you'll forget a lot of stuff. Eventually, it will own you. It will be the thing that will ruin your marriage. It will be the thing that will ruin your family, make you lose your children if it's elevated. It's not wrong, but in our sin, we will make it wrong. We will make it wrong. But how do we make it wrong? Because we begin to serve the created thing and not the creator. It's why God leads us away from drunkenness and says, that's not gonna save you. Don't get hammered. Enjoy life, the common grace. It falls on the just and unjust alike because God is merciful. But don't forget where it comes from and don't forget your ultimate desire, your ultimate object of worship and service is me. And that will lead you to life and true and real joy that won't be robbed from you. So the second thing is, this is beautiful about God, is he doesn't need you to serve him. God wasn't waiting on you like, this is the thing that will finally fulfill me. He doesn't need you to serve him, love him, or desire him. He wants you to for your good and for his glory because he created you that way. But it's so, what a relief it is to serve a a God that loves us unconditionally because you know what that means? That means that my service isn't the thing I'm doing in order to receive what I need. You're valuable and worthy because of him and what he has done, because you're his child. My children aren't worth something because they play soccer or because they make good grades. They are worth something to me because they are my son and my my daughter. That's why. Nothing else. They could blow it big time or they they could light the world on fire and I will smile and cry but it will not change their worth or their value in the Harmon household. What a relief that God doesn't need us, but he loves us. That's the God you wanna serve. You don't wanna serve the God that's asking you to pay it because they will all come paying. People unknowingly and subconsciously will do it and the rest of the world, everything that we engage in will, they want something back. They want you to pay the debt. Jesus paid it all. He's not asking you to pay him back. He loves you. He loves you and he's relentless for your love. Not because he needs yours, but because he knows it's good for you. I love that what you study in here in the Come and Listen series is the same thing that we study in OCC Kids. The Jesus Storybook Bible is phenomenal. Sally Lloyd-Jones is a genius in the way that she wrote it. Just saying that every page of this book whispers his name. And I love the tagline. It reads like this. When I think about Second Chronicles chapter 12, I always have to remember this is why God does what he does. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, and I think about Rehoboam, I think about what's happening in this scene. He says, in spite of everything, that God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children learning or yearning for their home. I love that. And God doesn't stop. It's never ending. It's never stopping. It's never giving up. He's coming after us. He's the one we want to serve. He's the one that's worthy of our worship. He's the one that we respond to. He's the one that we give our lives to. Not to put our hands in his pockets so that we have a good life. Because you know what? God is going to refine us through the suffering of this world. And there's going to be moments that we get to 
have with friends, with family, vacations where we get to say, God, thank you. It's not our foundation. And you know what? It's fleeting at best. But we can glorify him even in those moments. But let's stand together because I want to read this over us as a church. I really want to read it over my own heart, but it's from Romans chapter 8. When I think about God and when I think about serving, I think about this. Romans 8, 31 through 39 in the message says this. It says, so what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition, our sinful brokenness, and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son. Is there anything else that he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would even dare point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way, no trouble, no hard times, no hatred, no hunger, no homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins. You know why I love this passage? Because when I think about serving God and in the, in the moment thinking about he really needs me or wants me to serve him and he needs worship and all. No. Look at, look at what God's done. Look at what he's done first. Always before us. Jesus served us first. Jesus loved us first. With no expectation of anything in return. In his love for us, he calls us home into a place of worship and service. But he's always the one that served us first. So as we respond, just allow your heart to open up to him. Think about the things that we've, we've given up and move towards thinking it will save us and rescue us. Maybe we need to lay some things down. Maybe we need to come home for maybe the very first time to know him, to respond to him find our purpose in him. God, we love you. We love who you are. We love that your word is, it cuts into the marrow of who we are, into the very soul of, of who we are, right down to our desires, down to our ego, down to the burdens that we carry and the brokenness that we don't know what to do with. Your word comes and brings clarity. God, just speak by the power of your Holy Spirit into the very person that we are.